Good evening. It is good to be together. It's good to worship God. I hope we have come with open hearts as we have just sung to open the Word of God to allow those ancient words to mold us in the way that God wants us to be shaped. We are thankful that those that were a part of our father-son retreat are back home safely. I understand that at times Saturday there were many as 70 and 75 of our father and sons gathered there. We appreciate the opportunity that we have to fellowship together and to be encouraged with each other and to have a period of time like that to be together with our sons. And we're thankful for Clint and his organization of that. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we've had to do that. I do want to remind you again that Tuesday night will be the Latin American dinner. And if you want to support it, and if you want to support Phil Wagner in the work that he's doing and also the work of Latin America, this is a wonderful time to do that. You can do that at any time, but this is a wonderful time to do that and a great opportunity. I also want to ask you if any of you men would be willing to help set up tables. Dennis Buchanan is going to be setting up tables right after services, and if you're willing to do that for that dinner, there'll be a lot of tables and chairs set up, and your help in that could really make it go very quickly. So if you could do that. Uh, following uh, the, the services that would be greatly appreciated in Psalms the 85th chapter the prayer and the praise is for the Lord to revive us again what a beautiful and a passionate plea when we think of the theme of revival the idea of to be made alive again the idea of to be conscious the idea to be strong and vigorous. When someone is in physically a critical condition, what we long to hear is that they have been revived. Now they're alive. Now they're conscious. Now they're strong. And so it is spiritually, it's even more important. It's more important that we're honest with ourselves and that we're not telling ourselves what we want to hear, but we're telling ourselves the reality. Do you want a doctor to lie to you or do you want a doctor to tell you the truth about what could improve your health? And so it is spiritually. I hope that today the idea of studying revival has been one that we're willing to be honest with ourselves. And we're willing to say, I truly want to seek God. I want to seek His will. And if there's anything that is destroying my strength spiritually, I want to be revived. I want to be made alive again. Let's look at some of these passages in Psalm 85. I'd like for you to notice verse 1, 2, and 3. These are some things that we covered this morning. Remember, this was probably sometime after the Babylonian captivity and their ability and their ableness through God to return and to begin building back their city, the temple, and the wall. And so it's with that that we read in 85, 1, 2, and 3, Lord, you've been favorable to your land. See, the only reason they came back was because of the grace of God. You have been brought back from the captivity of Jacob. The only reason they know the freedom that they know now is because of the grace of God. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. And then talking about that forgiveness, he says, you have covered all their sin. And then that, that sailor that we mentioned this morning, it's almost as if the writer of this says, pause now. Be devoted to that thought. Meditate upon that thought. Appreciate that thought. When God can say, I've covered your sin, it's not going to be brought up again. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. I'll remember your sin no more. Friends, do you realize the beautiful gift that is? And as the next phrase talks about, the wrath of God has been appeased. We won't face the wrath of God. But as we talked about this morning in the middle part of the sermon, is the very idea that our human nature is we want to cover up our sin. 
Our human nature is, I, I don't want to uncover it because that would be embarrassing. Pride gets in the way. And God is demanding that we be humble. God is demanding that we uncover our sin and we confess it and we bring it to the Lord. And then, and only then, can he deal with it and cover it so that we don't deal with it any longer. This morning we looked at the fact that our tendency is to deny our sin. First John, the first chapter in verse 9 and 10. Remember there in verse 10, if we say that we've not sinned, we're all sinners. Why would we say we've not sinned? Our human nature is we want to deny it. Remember Isaiah the fifth chapter, we won't even deny that it's sin. We'll take things that are good and, and we will call those evil and we'll take things that are evil and we'll call it good. We'll take things that's darkness and we'll call it light. We'll take things that are bitter and we'll call it sweet. Listen, simply because we deny identifying sin for what it is does not change the fact that it is sin. But also, we try to excuse it. In Luke, the 14th chapter this morning, we read, we read about Jesus speaking to a group of individuals and each of the three individuals made an excuse. And what's interesting is it's the same kind of excuses that we made today. One made an excuse about the property that he owned. Another made an excuse about possessions that he owned. And another made an excuse about people in his life. And the Lord is simply urging us to realize that our excuses that we make may make us feel better and it may cause others to say, oh, I understand. But listen, God knows the difference in what is right and wrong. That's pretty elementary, isn't it? An excuse in God's eyes is not going to change something that is wrong into righteousness. Isn't that interesting how we convince ourselves that it is? Here's something wrong. If I can give God just a good enough excuse, he's going to start calling this thing that's wrong right. No, wrong. He's not. Not at all. And so now let's give some consideration this evening to more things that the Word of God reveals that we are tempted with from time to time that instead of dealing righteously and uncovering our sin and saying, Lord, I want to handle this now. I want to be close to you. And can I pause right here and just say this? The whole backdrop of this lesson is the idea in Psalm 85. What if our heart is, Lord, I want to be right with you and I want to move close to you. I lift you up as the one that has changed my life. I want you to restore me. I want, I want you to revive me. I want to have the rejoicing that is found only in you. And then we're going to look at things in the scriptures where God says, here is where temptation and our human nature work against these very things. Sometimes we deny it. Sometimes we excuse it. Sometimes we simply try to silence it. Look with me, if you will, to Joshua, the seventh chapter. And let me give you a quick background of this particular story. We'll probably spend the most time on this particular one and then mention some others very quickly tonight. But I want you to think about the great Old Testament story, and I say it's great, it's really a sad story, but it's great in the sense that God very powerfully made a point here. You remember when it was the time for the conquest, Joshua led the children of Israel over the Jordan River and they come to Jericho. And you remember that God allowed them to conquer Jericho in a way that no army could do so without the power of God. In other words, they marched around a city and, and the walls fell. That's not your typical way of warfare. It was to prove to the people that God is on their side and that God is going to give them victory. But before this took place, they were given orders. When you go in, there's going to be things of great value in this city. 
You do not take any of them personally. God identified these as the accursed things. He says you can gather them up and you can put them in the Lord's treasury, but you do not keep them. They go in and have a great defeat because God gave them the victory against Jericho. As we go into the seventh chapter, we read about the small town of Ai and spies were sent out and the spies came back and said, this is such a small area, only send two or 3,000 men there. There's no reason to weary all of our men. This is going to be an easy victory. And so about 3,000 went into victory. And strange enough, God didn't give them victory. Instead, they went into a warfare where a few men began to conquer the Israelites. And we read back in verse 5 that 36 men were struck down of the Israelites. They came running back home. Joshua was so upset that he tore his clothes. And when we begin reading it, verse 10, and, and by the way, back up in verse 7, Joshua was saying to the Lord, At last, Lord God, why have you brought this people over to the Jordan at all? And, and in the following verses, he's saying, we're all going to die here because the enemies are going to hear how weak we are. A small town of Ai have destroyed us. They're going to hear about it and your name is not going to be any longer. That promise made to Abraham is not going to be fulfilled. And notice what God says beginning at verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I command them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. I like that New King James language there. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before the enemies, but turned their backs before the enemies because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. And so in the following verses after this, God tells them to tell the children of Israel to prepare to be sanctified tomorrow. And he's going to bring out tribes and he's going to bring out families of tribes and he's going to bring out individuals until whoever has the accursed thing will be found out. And it's interesting at this time, Achan didn't come forward. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if even before this he would have come forward, but wouldn't it have been wonderful if whenever he made that announcement that night that tomorrow we're going to have a time of sanctification. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if he'd come forward and said, I want to confess to Israel. I've sinned. I've taken some of the accursed things and I'm sorry. But you still see, he was still believing that if he kept silent, as long as nobody else knows, there's no problem with sin. Isn't that interesting how Satan convinces us of that? As long as nobody else knows. Are you harboring anything in your life that you would be totally deflated if other people knew? Why aren't you deflated now? Do you think that it's not wrong because you're silent? This story reveals to us the power of sin, whether it is silent or whether it's known, because God's eyes see everywhere, so it's never silent. And so let's read as, as we go to the following verse. I'd like for you to notice what he points out when he calls them out in verse 17. <clears throat> 
and, and he pulls out the clan of Judah, and then he pulls out the, the family of the Zarites, and then he pulls out Zabdi, and then from there comes Achan. And Achan stands before him. We read in verse 20 and then 21. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them, and there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. And the following chapter may seem extreme. Joshua sent out men to dig under his tent. The goods were brought out. He and his family were brought out. And they were all destroyed. Listen, you won't find a place in the scriptures where God does not deal seriously with sin. Our problem is when we don't deal seriously with sin. That's why grace is so awesome. Grace spares us. Grace pays a price that we can't pay ourselves. But if our idea is there's no big deal about sin, grace doesn't cover an attitude that says there's no big deal about sin. If, as long as I'm silent about it, as long as no one knows about it, I'm okay in it. And yet it's revealed over and over. Let's run through just a few scriptures real quick. Numbers, the 32nd chapter and verse 23. I wish I could give you the setting for all of these, but time doesn't allow with this. But just as sub points about this silence, think about this. Numbers 32 and 23, Moses told the children of Israel before they went over into conquest, but if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Is there a way to be silent about sin? Do you see what God's saying? God says, you think you can be silent and, and that there'll never be consequences and they'll never be known. And it's as if God is, is, is shaking our shoulders saying, wake up. You're not living in a real world. In Galatians the sixth chapter and verse seven, why does Paul begin with these two phrases? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Why is it so hard for us to believe that, that Paul has to begin by saying, listen, I want to tell you something, and you're going to be easily fooled about this. A man sows a watermelon seed, he's going to always get a watermelon. You're kidding, right, Paul? You think we're going to be easily deceived about that. Yes, Paul says, I think you are. We get in our mind that we can sin and that we will not reap the consequences of harvest of the sin. We get in our mind that we can mock God. <laughs> God says that I'm going to have to pay for sin. Look, I got a whole slew of sin that I've committed. I've never paid for any of it. Friends, you will pay for it. There may be a mocking, but it will not be God that's mocked. Don't be deceived. Don't mock God. God has said something very certain. Whatever we sow, that we will also reap. Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter, in verse 13 and 14, the whole duty of man in 13 is to fear God and keep his commandments, the preacher says. And notice in verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. 
You see, that's why there's no reason for you to brag on yourself when you do things that are good that no one else knows about. Someone does know about it. On the day of judgment, everybody that's ever lived will know about it because everything will be brought to the day of judgment, even the things that we believe are secret including the things that are sinful if we have never sought God's forgiveness. Colossians says it like this in 3 and 25, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. There is no partiality. Listen, sin is sin. God's not going to look down and say, well, I tell you what, you kept that sin so quiet and you did go to church a lot. So I'm not going to hold you accountable for sin. But everybody else that I've ever created, I'm going to hold them accountable for sin. I tell you what, it's your last name. You've got a lot of good relatives. I'm not going to hold you accountable. What, what have you ever conjured up in your mind that you and God have some kind of deal worked out? That everybody else is going to be held accountable but you. Listen, there is no such thing as silent sin. Because even though we think no one else knows in time, they will. But God knows the very moment that it is committed. We also, if you would be turning to Acts 5, this is a very serious temptation. I'm not suggesting that the others that we're talking about aren't, but this does seem like one that can become very habitual. And it really puts us in a very, very unethical type of lifestyle. Do you remember the story in Acts, the fifth chapter of Ananias and Sapphira? You see, they were committing a sin in the very fact that they wanted to be known as more generous people than what they actually were. We don't know of any standard that was set of when a property was sold of how much they had to give in the sense that if you sell your property, you have to give X percent of it and lay it at the apostles' feet. But in Acts, the fifth chapter, they sold a property and they brought it and they said that this represented one amount of the property as if this is the whole amount. But the reality was it wasn't. He and his wife got together and they made a plan of what they were going to keep back and then misrepresent it. And so when we read down in verse 4, notice what he says there in Acts 5. He says, why have you convinced this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men but to God. Back up in verse 3, he says, you have filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. And notice fear came upon all those who had heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Why? Why did they lie? Do you realize that they literally lied because it was part of the plan? Hey, honey, do you realize we could keep back a good portion of this? And do you realize as we do that, all we have to do is, and here's the problem when lying becomes the escape valve. We can keep what we want and lie about it. Well, that's a great option. Why didn't I think of that? Is there anything that you've done last week that if someone asks you about it, your plan is to lie about it? Rather than that is a serious spiritual flaw in your life. Please listen to me. Please listen to God. 
If there are things going on in your life that your escape valve is, oh, I'm not going to confess it. I'm not going to come clean with it and repent. My escape valve is I'm lying about it. I've lied to the boss for years about this. I've lied to my wife for years about this. I've lied to my husband for years about this. I've lied to the kids for years. I've lied to my parents for years. Listen, you can't keep living a lie. What about if every one of us in this room this week and for the rest of our life, what if every one of us said, I am only going to do things that I will not lie about. I'll come clean about anything I do because that is the standard of life that I want to achieve. We cannot become people that believe that lying is the way we can go deeper into sin in some way now or in the end it's going to work itself out. Lying may seem like once we get to a level of, of sin in our life it may seem like a really good way to cover up sin. But it's not. And the truth will be known but Really, more importantly than that, your soul, your soul is in jeopardy. Whether the truth's known today or next month or next year, your soul is in jeopardy today. That's why it's important for us not only to tell the truth, but to live the truth. And if we live the truth, we don't have to worry about being tempted to tell a lie. Other times, our struggle is with evading the truth. If you will, go to 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. We're going to a story that you know very well, so uh, we'll mention it a little more quickly. You remember the story with David and Bathsheba? What if he would have just come clean at the moment that he looked off that rooftop and, and he lusted? What if he said, Lord, I am sorry. I confess to you that thoughts went through my mind that I should have never had. Lord, I uncover that to you. I confess that to you. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Can you imagine how different his life would have been? Instead, he tried to cover up his sin. He covered up his sin by going deeper into it, committing adultery. And then even at that point, he didn't uncover his sin and confess it. He waited to do anything until she came back and said, I'm with your child. Then notice, his solution there was not to confess it. In his mind's eye, his solution there was, I've got to figure out a way to evade these consequences. And so he asked Uriah to come home. Uriah was such an honorable man because the other soldiers were out in battle, he wouldn't go into the household with his wife. That really messed up David's plan of evading this situation. So he got him drunk the next night, hoping that he'd go home. He still didn't go home. So he says, when you go back to battle, take this letter to Joab. And it was the letter telling him to take him into the very hottest part of the battle. And then when he's there, retreat from him so that he would die. He carried his own letter of execution. We look at that and say, David, how in the world could you do that? You know how? Because he had no intentions at that point in his life of confessing the sin. Everything at that point in his life was cover up, cover up, cover up. Do you hear me, brethren? You will do things that you would never want to ever do as long as your mindset is, I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to cover it up. What will you do to cover it up? 
to what low will you go to cover up sin? And when you get there, where are you? You're not anywhere that you will want to be. And David found himself looking at a man he respected greatly, perhaps pointing a finger at him and saying, you are the man. You're the man that's guilty of the sin. And a few verses down, he hears from God, your punishment will be that the sword will never leave your family. He had his son to rape his daughter. His other son, Absalom, murdered Amnon. Absalom later on would raise up and try to take the kingdom away from his own father. And then later on, he too would be murdered. You read the rest of David's life and you know what you find out? The sword never left his family. Why? Why do you read those terrible stories? Because God said, your sin has consequences. And you're going to pay for the evading that you tried to do. We can uncover sin ourselves in humility and beg God's forgiveness. Or we can think that we can cover up ourselves in some way, still be found righteous, but that's a lie. We go to Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and I think this is one that we must understand. Hebrews 9 and 27, we also learn that we can't outlive the guilt of sin. You understand what I'm saying? God will forgive us at any time. But someone may be here that may be in their 60s, 70s, 80s. And friends, I'm not saying these things because, wow, the preacher's trying to come down on us. I promise you I'm not. I hope you know me well enough to know that. I'm saying this for our soul's sake. There may be someone here that became a Christian as a teenager and did things in your 20s that you have never sought God's repentance, God's forgiveness by His way. And you say, well, I've lived a good life through the rest of my 20s, my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, my 60s, my 70s. So you're telling me that you really believe in a merit system. You really believe that if you'll just do the right thing over time, that that takes away the guilt of sin. You don't need Jesus then. You don't need a savior. All you need is a merit system. I do something wrong and then I just need to pile up enough good over enough decades and I'm saved. Brethren, you can't find that anywhere. That's salvation without Christ. You can't outlive the guilt of your sin. As a matter of fact, your death won't even cause you to outlive the guilt of your sin because Hebrews 9, 27 tells us it's appointed once for you to die and after that, the judgment. You and I are gonna wake up on the other side. We're gonna face the day of judgment and we will still face the guilt of our sin if in fact that is the condition of which we died. Listen, just because I sneak my way back into a better, righteous life does not mean that God has forgiven me of my sins. I must humbly come back to Him and I must uncover myself to Him and say, God, I come to you wanting you to restore me, wanting you to revive me. And if I've never become a Christian, we talked this morning about what we must do to be saved, to be a believer that's willing to repent of sins and confess before man and be baptized for the remission of those sins. If I've already become a Christian, James 5 clearly teaches that I need to confess my faults one to another and pray one for another. If I'm not willing to come clean with the fact that I need a Savior and that I'm guilty of sin and I want people to be praying for me if I've already been baptized or I want to be baptized because I need a Savior if I haven't been, I'm playing a religious game with myself and it's a roulette game over time 
And I'm banking on the fact that some way just doing the right thing will take away the guilt of my sin, and it won't. The only way that takes away the guilt of our sin is the blood of Jesus by the grace of God on his terms. It's a gift that is offered, but I have to choose if I'm going to receive it. And I have to receive it based upon his conditions. So I ask you to consider in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, pity alone is not enough. We read in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world produces death. Somebody says, well, I'm sorry for my sin. Sorrow alone is not enough. It's godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. It's godly sorrow that says, Lord, I'm coming back to you and I want to make my life right. There's a big difference in being sorry that I got caught. There's a big difference in being sorry that maybe I can't continue this sin. There's a big difference in saying now I'm sorry because I realize there's a lot of consequences with my sin. All of those things are a big difference in being like David. Once he finally did come to his senses and you read Psalm the 51st chapter, God against you and you only have I sinned. God, I know that what you long for is a broken and a contrite heart. You read Psalm 51 and you see a man that is full of sorrow coming back and laying his heart and his soul and his life at the foot of God, begging, begging for restoration and for revival in his life. That's the kind of sorrow that'll lead us back. But just saying, I'm sorry, that's just throwing a blanket over it and saying, I'm still trying to hide my sin But then also, I'd like for you to realize in Acts 24 and 25, we see something that's very sobering and we close with this. Acts 24 and 25, Paul had preached apparently a pretty powerful sermon to Felix. Paul was under arrest and he preached to him in Acts 24 and 25 about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And Felix was afraid. And he answered, I want you to pause here with me for a minute. When you find yourself not within the will of God, it should make us afraid. But the question I need to ask myself right now, it doesn't matter what your condition is right now. All of us need to ask ourselves this question. When I find myself opposed to the will of God, That is a very humbling and frightful situation. What will my response be? At that moment of fear, what will my response be? Will my response be, I'm going to deny it. I'm going to make excuses. I'm going to try to silence it. I don't want anyone to know. Will my response be like Felix? How tempting is it in our human nature to say this? Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. We don't ever know a Felix having a convenient time. Why? Why would we do that? With all that God has offered us today, there's so much at stake and so much to risk. Why would we wait for that time that in reality it's not going to come. Satan is going to do everything he can do to make sure there's not a convenient time. What we do is we make it a priority. We make God a priority. And that's the time.
And so I'd like for us to close by thinking about Psalm 85 and verse 4, 5, and 6 again. We've said it this morning. I just want, to see, I want you to see it again. When we have a heart that can genuinely and humbly plead as the psalmist did, Lord, restore us, O God, of our salvation. God, you're the only one that can put us back into place. You can't get yourself back into place, but by the grace of God, you and God can. You and God together can. It's not saying, let me get me right. It's saying, God, I want you to get me right. I'll put you first in everything, and it's going to be okay as long as I can humbly put God first in everything. Then notice verse 6 there where he says, Wilt thou not revive us again? Isn't it heartbreaking that we have to say again? And you know what? If we live much longer, we're going to have to say again, again. We're just not perfect. The question is not, have you ever sinned? The question is, what do you do when you sin? If your idea is, I'm just going to cover it up, I'm going to cover it up. You're not going to find restoration. You're not going to find revival. And you're not going to find the joy of the Lord. But when we can join the psalmist in saying, God, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm weak. I need reviving again. Please, God, revive me again. Why? We want the joy of God. There's an earthly joy. Moses in Hebrews, the Hebrew writer said that there's pleasure in sin for a season. There is an earthly joy. And that earthly joy is tied to sin but it doesn't last. As a matter of fact, when it wears off, it wears off bad. It leaves us in places where we're hurting and we've hurt other people. And the psalmist is saying, I want the joy that only you can bring. Tonight, no excuses. No procrastinating. Tonight's the time. It's a time for revival. It's a time to make sure that we all leave here alive. Right with our God. Whatever we can do to help.